0: Hey, it's Jackie Russo. I'm so excited to be a part of Rick's show. You guys, it's going to be fun. We're going to talk about building a brand, growing a business, and being successful. See y'all there. You're listening to
1: Rick Flynn. With a shout out from London town, it's Rick Flynn Presents... Now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. Hi, everyone. Welcome on in. A great show today featuring a woman who is a brand strategist. That is what she does. She is a brand strategist with more than 25 years worth of experience on a national level in a cross-section of industries, which I mean, in my opinion, she's done a little in this industry, a little in that. You mix it all together after 20 five years, and you have Jackie Russo, your company, which you've established, which is called Brand Russo. Would that be right?
0: That would be correct, Rick. Thanks.
1: And thank you for clearing your schedule coming on the program. I greatly appreciate it. We're glad to have you. Why is what you do, Jackie, so important?
0: Well, I think that when people hear brand strategists, they're thinking, I roll. I mean, branding, what is that? It's just some logos. And what I'm on a mission to do is make sure that people realize that branding is more than the brand identity, the logo. Branding is actually everything. It's how people see you, how they feel about you, how people are greeted, the experience of the website, your products, your services, your company. What do you do different? What do you do special? All of that's the brand. And when it's not authentic, when it's not real, when you're a little company pretending to be big, when you're a big company pretending to be nice, your brand gets broken and people know it because now with social media, we have the power to tell each other how we feel. We don't have to just believe the BS that companies are putting out there. And so it's about how do you get your stuff straight so that you can grow the way you want to.
1: Ah, I see. But you know, you mentioned it there. Have you, I'm sure you've had experiences with companies, maybe in the insurance industry let's say, that would be one area where the reputation is not that great and you're left with a collapsed house of cards in the public's eyes and you've got to build it back up. Is that difficult and do you ever get frustrated?
0: Well, I think anybody who deals with clients understands what frustration means. But sure, we have clients all the time that do things either they didn't prepare properly, so they're caught off guard when there's an issue, or... Or they just do things maybe not always the right way, and it comes back to bite them. Either way, we get called in for some crisis communications. and I, I actually just shot a video on this. I-, I had the good fortune of being in Venice, Italy last week, and there's a phenomenon that happens there every few years called aqua alta, which means the water gets really high, and it floods St. Mark's Square, and it gets into the church. It's just a travesty because Venice is sinking and water is rising. And so they have set up these walkways, these two-foot-tall catwalks to get tourists from one side of St. Mark's Square in and out of the church without having to walk through all this water. The locals are wearing boots. They expect it. They understand it's coming. There's a whole app where you can track the high water. And in the video, I was talking about the fact that this could be a crisis. It could be where they lose their tourism trade, which is the economic foundation of the area, but they anticipate it, they prepare for it, they work through it, and the tourists are not inconvenienced whatsoever. And so how are you preparing for the crises that you can control and anticipate or the ones that catch you out of left field and you don't know that are coming? Either way, you can't get caught with your pants down. You got to be prepared for it. In business, our customers rely on us to create a community that they feel safe in. So businesses have to respond.
1: Right. Oh, I can understand that. And that, you know, when I first began years ago, I had, I hated to to get caught without a guest for that week because then you reach out and grab and anyone. Now, by the grace of God, I'm delighted to say we're booked up now months in advance. And you cannot, as I've said, you're using the same expression I've used for years. I always tell everyone, I don't want to get caught with my pants down. There's not a worse feeling in the world than that. You've got to stay ahead of your game.
0: Correct. 100%.
1: Now, years ago, Jackie, you got started with an agency who I have worked with and I worked with them very Early on, so many years ago, I forget the client that came on. This was back when I was a a, a newspaper columnist and I had a syndicated column. But I believe, if my memory serves me right, and I may be wrong, but you worked for Creative Artist Agency, CAA, as did I when they represented, and I think it was the Beach Boys, and they came on and I interviewed. Interviewed them back when I was a columnist. Do you happen to recall, in your experience, whether or not that agency did handle the Beach Boys, or was not? Was that not in your purview?
0: I believe that you are correct that CAA handled the Beach Boys. It would make sense they handled every top artist at one time or another. And uh, you are correct that I worked there. That was my very first job out of college.
1: Right now, that is a spectacular uh, way to step out of, of a college. <laughs> Oh, boy, they are one of the heavy hitters. They and William Morris in New right. York. Oh, fabulous agencies, both of them. Did you enjoy that time? And what did you learn working with those those A-list uh, celebrities that you handled there?
0: Well, I think enjoy might be a bit of a stretch there, Rick. Uh, it was an experience. It was an experience that I am grateful for every day. It set the path of my career and uh, obviously 30 years later, I still get to use it on my resume and have people ask me about it. So I'm forever grateful for the uh, launch pad that it gave me. It was long days. I, I would be in the office around 7 a.m. I would get home around 10 p.m. I worked six or seven days a week, uh, but I was young. I was 23 and uh, started when I was 22, uh, transitioned out of there at 24. And um, But it was, it was incredible. I had the good fortune of being on um, the assistant. And my first job there was the assistant to Ruth Ann Uvain, who was married to Kevin Uvain, who was running the agency in collaboration with uh, Brian Lord and, um, you know, Mike Lovitz and Ron Mayer and Rick Mesita and a, a bunch of these really just incredible talents. And I got to learn the business from the inside out, from the top to bottom. I worked with some awesome, awesome clients who were just getting their start. I got to work on some amazing projects and uh, enjoy would be a stretch, but grateful would be accurate.
1: Right. Grateful for the experience, but sure. it, it could be, it was a weight on your shoulders. Can we say that?
0: It was a lot of pressure. Uh, it was a lot of responsibility. I had uh, just moved from Louisiana to Los Angeles, and I was a fish out of water on so many different levels. I felt like it was a crash course in an entertainment MBA. It's uh, <laughs> It was crazy. I mean, I, you know, I, I get in the elevator one day, and, and in steps Tom Cruise, and so we're riding up together. I'm um, crossing the lobby and and into Al Pacino, who's walking around holding his uh, Academy Award for Scent of a Woman. I answered the phone. Every call was with a celebrity, a power broker, a major player. And so I learned the culture. I learned the do's and don'ts. I learned through watching people, through reading. I, I just became a-, a voracious studier of human nature and figuring out how to fit into this world in which I found myself. It was novel worthy, to say the least. Uh, now, if you've seen *The uh, Devil Wears Prada, The assistant that just starts, who looks kind of frumpy, that was me at the beginning and the end. There's no after picture here. I looked like that the whole way through, Uh, but it was awesome.
1: Oh my, the devil wears Prada. Wow. I'll tell you what, what did you learn? Jackie, about being young, gung-ho, wanting to make a difference right out of college, and then here you are in this in this pool of celebrity action. Did you learn anything about those individuals being any different than what you were? Other than the you fact know, perhaps a... they were a little well-known, more well-known, but other than and that- wealthier.
0: They had more money, right? Yeah. sure. Yes, um, But you know, it was interesting. People are people. And no matter what level you're at, it's about how you treat the people around you. And so I found that most of our clients really had great concern and regard for others and were very kind and made me feel welcome and useful. There were a few times where I made some major uh, mistakes and it, uh, it was a challenge and they were gracious. Some of them were gracious and kind, some of them not so much. It's pressure. It's a pressure cooker. You know, you're talking about uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on projects, and every deadline, every phone call, every nuance in an email could set a project forward or ruin it forever. Um, there are secrets guarded uh, stronger than Fort Knox, and there is an entire culture that operates differently there than anywhere else. I can't imagine a better first education to um, know what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do moving forward. I think that the the greatest lessons though were just about how to treat people. I found that the uh, talent that had risen to the top, they were usually the kindest. And so they want to be treated like regular people and they treated everyone else uh, with respect and kindness. But I mean, I was working with Tom Hanks and Blair Underwood and Helen Hunt and and just some some truly good people who, who did great work and who were able to manage the stresses of their positions. Um, I did come to figure out that that's not the um, place I wanted to be forever. And so I was able to leverage that to move into a job at a newly formed production company. And so I got to be in the ground floor building something and working on a couple of major motion pictures and working with some product development. And that took me to Home Shopping Network. And, you know, every step was just another move forward in my career until I was able to move back to Louisiana.
1: Now, I loved how you phrased it because it's so true what you just said. Here's what you said. You said you th- these celebrities they rose to the top. Do you believe the cream rises to the top, or have you seen not the most talented, not the best rise to the top? But they do it because of their personality. They have this this ability to with um, to do well in front of a particular niche of society. Or do you believe the cream? always rises. What are your feelings on that?
0: Well, I think there's always going to be some sliders, uh, some people who are able to slide in under the door, uh, maybe not necessarily earned or invited in, uh, but they use some other uh, way to get inside. I mean, that's just in every every nature of every business. But for the most part, the people that I had the opportunity to work with my entire almost you know, six, seven years in Los Angeles, they were people who worked really hard and were truly doing their best and really, really wanted to make the most of the situation for themselves and everyone around them. Um, and so that was great. You know, I, I ended up with some some opportunities of my own. Uh, one of the things that I did for the agency uh, when I was at CAA was I would uh, do coverage. So we read scripts. This is outside of our nine to five job. And I use the words nine and five laughingly because it was more like seven to 10. But uh, we could on the after hours read scripts for additional money. And since we were being paid very uh, low wages, that was very helpful to be able to make rent. And We would cover the script, we'd read it, we'd write a report of what it said and our recommendations of which clients would be perfect for it or if it should be made or not made, whatever. And so one of the scripts that I was uh, tasked with covering was by an up-and-coming director. He'd had a breakout freshman hit, and this was going to be his sophomore offering. And I enjoyed his his first movie. I thought it was solid. And we had a couple of clients who really wanted to be a part of the second movie because they thought he was just the next great thing. And so I read the script, and I didn't get it. I didn't see it. I did not... Think it was all that, and so uh, one of the clients that I worked directly with, Eric Stoltz, had a huge interest in the director and the script, and and so we met, and I said, I I got to tell you, I covered it over the weekend. I just don't see it. I don't think it's very good. I I, I know that you're putting this your career back together after a little bit of a. Um, pick up and I just don't think this is the next right move for you. And to his credit, he did not listen to me uh, because I was an idiot. And he went on to make Pulp Fiction, which was wise, uh, I feel for him. And it was a huge success. And I love the movie now, but I didn't see it in the script. It just didn't come through in the page. So, you know, you make choices, you make recommendations, you put your neck out there and realize later you were an idiot. And that sums up a good portion of my career at times.
1: Right. Are these celebrities any smarter than you are?
0: You know, I think everybody has skills and talents in their own way. If, uh, if you ask a fish to climb a tree, you're going to think that fish is no good. Uh, and if you ask a bird to swim in the ocean, you're going to think that bird has no talent. So I don't think it's about anybody being smarter or better. I think it's about finding the people who have the talent and putting them in a place where they can be successful in that arena. Um, Actors can't always write. Writers can't always act. And so uh, knowing who you are and how you excel, that's where you're going to really find your purpose. And so I think about that here at the agency. For the past 23 years, I've had the opportunity to hire people. Oftentimes, I've done a great job with that. I've got a great person, put them in the right place, and they have shined and, and they're still here You know, 10, 15, 18 years later. In some cases, I it's been a mismatch. We thought somebody was going to be perfectly suited for their position. They were not. We're able to transition them to something else. And so it really just depends on matching the person to the opportunity. Then you can see what their real talent is.
1: Now, did you work with the rock and roll bands that CAA handled?
0: I did not. I was in uh, what they call the talent department, specifically focused on actors and actresses. I uh, covered Disney, Lorimar, and the Spelling Company and Broadway. And so, if there was a Broadway producer who wanted a CAA actor, actress, or writer director, they would come through my desk to help facilitate that. And so, I got to work a little bit on TV, a little bit in feature films, and a little bit on uh, plays and musicals. And so, that was a blast. That was where my fascination was. The music department. Was there? It was not nearly as big as it is now. It has become a major heavyweight player in the music industry and the sports. There were a few athletes rolling around in the '90s, uh, but now you know they are a massive player in the sports arena. So that's that's all been growth after my time.
1: Well, I'll tell you, even back then, the sports uh, officials, when you came out of college, they weren't making the money that they are now.
0: Oh, for sure not. I mean, if you go back and see Jerry Maguire, uh, when you know he was demanding that we show him the money. It was pittance uh, compared to what these athletes are making these days.
1: Isn't that the truth? Pete Rose from the Cincinnati Reds, uh, he said that in his opinion, Johnny Bench from the Big Red Machine is the best catcher that ever played the game cuz not only could he catch obviously but he could hit and sure. he was making i believe it was uh, mr bench was making 400,000 a year you know what that's nothing today
0: i don't even think that's league minimum today <laughs> um, I,
1: right, you <laughs> get them. you get you get right out of uh, farm league and they're making right, that right right so there you go there you have it all right you didn't work in the music business as as i have all these years but Let me just give you the scenario because I'm sure it applies to what your expertise is. You have rock band A, you have rock band B. Let's say both of them are brand new in CAA's music division or any branding agency's division. I don't care. One over here, one over there. One rises and the other goes bankrupt. Is that just a case? Uh, What is that? Is that a case of talent how the public perceives them or is that attitude laden they can't be talked to they know all the answers believe me Jackie I've met them with their ink on a contract that wasn't even dry yet and they thought they knew everything a year later they're bankrupt they're out of business I've never heard from them ever again
0: well I think it's a great question Rick and I think that this um really pertains to whether you're in music you're acting you run an ad agency, or you are a a checkout person at the local grocery store, we all have the opportunity to make money, some larger dollar amounts than others, and spend that money. To me, bankruptcy is just a simple problem of spending more than you earn. Uh, A lot of time that comes with trying to keep up with the Joneses, of not staying humble, of not um, investing and saving, and uh, just being spenders. And I think that when someone gets that first contract, Act in sports or music or acting, um, or even as an investor in the company, all of a sudden they see green and they think that it's never going to stop and it's an unlimited source of funds and they, they go a little crazy. Uh, so I think good fiscal management is always important. One of the projects that I've been working on here at the agency lately is with name, image, and likeness, which is now an opportunity for college student athletes to make some money. You know, I was against it uh, myself personally. I thought that college should be pure. I don't think people should play professionally in the Olympics. I think that should stay pure and amateur. But it got passed through, and I understand the logic behind it. When you have someone who plays in a college band, a marching band, they are still able to do gigs on the weekend or for money or um, teach others. And so they have an opportunity to make money from their talent, but these athletes are not. So I created a program called Ultra uh, for the University of Louisiana, Go Raging Cajuns, that would help their 417 student athletes capitalize on the NIL opportunities. And a big part of the Ultra program is education, bringing in uh, professionals to teach them about you're making money as a W-9 worker, so no one's taking employment taxes out. That means you owe a large portion of what you just earned to the government at the end of the year. So how do you prepare and uh, protect yourself? How do you invest? whole set of speeches on that. And so knowing, being smart about money, that should be something we all learn early on. That should be required in high school, balancing checkbooks, understanding how to save, understanding how to invest, understanding how to make money work for you. It is a vital skill. To the rest of your question, though, when we're talking about a band, for example, who um, comes in, huge success, and then flames out. How does that happen when you see the Rolling Stones about ready to cut an album in their seventh decade, not of life, but of playing together? I mean, that's just crazy. And so as this album gets released, I'm thinking it was 19 years since their last album. 19 years is Taylor Swift's entire career. So her entire (laughs) career, (laughs) has fit in the span of their last album and their most recent album. That's shocking. And so how can somebody stay? What's the, the secret to their longevity? And I think it's the same, whether it's music or business or products or services, it's about knowing your audience, knowing them and leading from the front, knowing what they want and what they need and giving it to them. I see people who try to follow trends. That doesn't work. I see people who try to go off on their own and think people are going to follow them wildly. You know, way out there. That doesn't work. It's about finding that middle spot where you know who they are and you know what they need and you give them something and you build a community. And so, how are you exceeding expectations? How are you giving them something more than what they get from someone else? This is just plain smart business. And if we think like business people and we run our lives and our careers like business people, then we're going to have a chance to last a little little bit longer, maybe not as long as the Stones, that's special, uh, but we're going to be able to make a difference, and, and that, I think, gives us purpose and helps to contribute to our success.
1: Boy, isn't that the truth. Now, you are out of Lafayette, Louisiana, and yes, I had occasion to work in my past with one gentleman who was a pioneer, big-time pioneer, with what they call the Cajun Zydeco branding of music, which you here in new orleans it's strongly uh french based uh among others it mixes a whole uh bunch of music together it's called zydeco and you had a gentleman in your hometown down there his name was buckwheat zydeco have you ever heard of him and are heard you a Z- are, yeah Please, are you Rick, yeah tell me about the late buckwheat who unfortunately we just lost him a year or so ago yes. he was yes. a Great, great performer. I loved him.
0: Well, you know, as you mentioned, the Acadiana area, which Lafayette sits in the center of, is founded by Cajuns. They are Europeans who were in Canada, who were kicked out of Canada uh, because of religious freedom issues. And they traveled all the way down from Canada to the Louisiana area that we now call Acadiana. And that's where Acadian got translated into Cajun. And so that's that's our nomer there. Uh, Buckwheat Zydeco was one of the greats. And if you look at uh, Terrence Simeon, you look at Rockin' and you look at all of these powerhouses that took this beautiful Cajun music and brought it around the world, where it is still so popular today. When we think about New Orleans, though, that's more Creole. They're two hours away from us, and um, they are not typically considered to be a Cajun base. Cajun's unique and specific to the Acadiana area, and it is. Is a fun music. It's a dancing music. It is what we have so many festivals around. You know, we have a festival almost every weekend here that's filled with food and good music and great dancing and good times. It's about fellowship and it's about our community being together. It's the reason why I moved home
1: wow and i'll tell you what the the it's a fun fun music and i just enjoyed it the people in ohio up here they love it It, and it's just it makes you smile it makes you happy and i love hearing the music that has that squeeze box the accordion You don't hear that much. And when you do hear it, it's, oh, Spanish eyes. And I'm so sick of Spanish eyes on the accordion. <laughs> and these guys know how to take and rock it. And C.J. Chenier, his dad was one of the the big uh, founders. He founded that, invented that instrument, which is a washboard that you mm-hmm. wear on your chest like a, mm-hmm. a, a, a vest and that thing, and I think when you play it, your fingers, you either use spoons to play the washboard or sometimes don't they use thimbles on their fingers?
0: Correct, correct. Spoons is most common, uh, but the thimbles also work and it really gives it a rhythmic cadence that's so unique to the music. It has, you know, I thought everybody listened to Cajun and Zydeco music. I didn't know it was special to this area growing up here. It wasn't until I moved away. Well, in college, I, I traveled a lot So I started to realize it. But then when I moved to the West Coast and lived in Los Angeles, I thought, oh, this is not the same. I get it. We're special. Our food, our music, our faith, our fellowship, our passion for football, all of those things make the area um, that I came from so unique.
1: All right. Very, very well. And by the way, over in in Europe. In, in Great Britain and other countries, they do not know what Zydeco music is. I've had to educate at least one that I know of over there and talk to them about that. And I think it's growing all the more. Would you go along with that?
0: Oh, 100%. You know, we were able to have our own category in the, the Grammys a few years ago, and I thought, boy, we're finally getting some industry recognition. And so I think that as those ambassadors continue to travel and bring our music to other lands, we will continue to recruit more fans and believers and visitors to our community.
1: All right. Now, after you left CAA Creative Artist Agency, oh, and by the way, I want to just ask one more thing and then sure. I want to move on. When I first met the Beach Boys, who, as we have discussed, they were a CAA client at that time, all those years ago. And this was back when it was the Beach Boys with their bright, solid white pants and white oh, sure. shoes? Remember that and the striped uh-huh. shirt. And the drummer was Dennis Wilson, one mm-hmm. of the one of the the brothers. And he, they called called him Denny on the drums. And he was this all American, pure teenage idol type of a guy. And darn it, if it wasn't years later, I had a chance to meet him. And boy, did he take a significant downturn Mm. uh, due to personal issues. And it broke my heart. I mean, he didn't last much longer. I, I would imagine he passed on of questionable circumstances, let's say a year or two after I'd seen him and spoke with him for the second time. But when they have it in their hip pocket and things are doing well. And then due to issues which are not beyond their control, they're issues within their control. They give it away. They've had enough. Does that break your heart? And have you ever seen that before with some very, very substantial clients?
0: It does. You know, I had some clients who grappled with some addiction issues while I was there. We had to provide some support and assistance for them. And it is heartbreaking. I think that uh, sometimes it is self-medicating. You know, maybe they don't realize that they have depression or uh, bipolar or whatever. And so they medicate themselves instead of seeking professional help. Sometimes I think that the the demons that fuel their art um, also chase them into dark alleys. Sometimes I think it's, you know, addiction is possibly in their DNA. Uh, And so that gun was loaded uh, from the generations before. And the lifestyle, the parties, the socializing provides the opportunity to pull the trigger. And no matter how they get to there, to watch great talent be diminished is heartbreaking. Um, To watch people suffer and families be broken up and then you know, death. It, it is, it's very challenging. It was, it's quite sad.
1: Very much so. And that's what I wanted to say, but let's move forward. One thing that I've noticed is oftentimes when these recording artists, let's say, get signed, there is a clause within the contract, which states if we have to, and this is the company doing the talking, if we have to spend blank amount, thousands, whatever it is, to produce this album, which can easily be 50, 75, and upward thousands of dollars. Usually it's not going to be millions unless you're an established artist already. They already know you're going to sell. Somebody like Madonna, somebody like the late Michael Jackson, they're going to put money into that, they know they're going to recoup it. But somebody that's fresh and new, they have to pay back the thousands that it took for that initial album. And where they make their mistake, Jackie, they get the contract signed, And they immediately start living life like they are Michael Jackson, like they are Madonna. And nothing can be further from the truth. You can get your mother to buy a copy later on when it's done. You can get your cousins and relatives to buy a few copies when the album finally gets done. But they are not celebrities. They are not successful. And they are usually in debt many times that they cannot pay off. And there you right. go. We will have a requiem for that band. You'll never see or hear from them again. Is that Correct. sad or is that good business on behalf well, of the company?
0: I think it's sad. I, I mean, you look at, and, and gosh, knows there's so many tales of the same woe. You look at the people, though, who are smarter now, I think, who are making better choices, who do not need the production and distribution professionals anymore like they used to because they've got some of that power in their own hands now. You look at the artists who have had a seat at the table and been able to advocate for those coming up behind them. And I'll bring up Taylor Swift again because her business acumen is through the roof. So when Apple Music came online and she said, no, you're not paying enough. The artists need to be compensated more. And they budged and they gave in. Um, you look at what she's done by uh, re-recording all of her masters so that she can own her work. And so I I look at every artist that's going to come after her, that they're going to walk in her footsteps and learn the lessons and hopefully do a better job of being business people and surrounding themselves with professionals they can trust and not get taken advantage of.
1: I'm going to tell you about a group. I don't know if you're old, you're young next to me, but perhaps mm-hmm. you're old enough to remember during the, British Invasion, the Dave Clark Five. Does, oh, of course. Does that ring a bell?
0: It does. Now, I wasn't around when they debuted, but I have obviously heard their music since. So, yes.
1: Right. They were one of the important bands from back in that era. And many speculated, although incorrectly, that they were going to be the band that was going to beat the Beatles, which <laughs> never happened. But one thing that they did is that the Beatles had lawsuits involved with their catalog. All Elton John had lawsuits involved with his catalog. A lot of those bands went through years of litigation and Dave Clark, it turned out, was a very, very savvy business person. And you know what he did? He created a situation where he rented the master tapes oh, to the smart. company. He rented them, I think, for five years. At the end of five years, he gets Them back. Now, is that, and Elton John said, I could, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase what Elton said. He said, "Uh, I wanted to wring his neck. The rest of us went through these lawsuits. And here was Dave with his rental. He got back the tapes contractually. He had not one lawsuit in the industry because he was wise enough to come up with a solution. Now, you're the branding expert. What do you think about that?
0: I think that's smart. Anytime you can take an opportunity opportunity uh, to put yourself in a good position from a business perspective, you're going to protect yourself. And I think that's great. I I look at the artists who did not get good advice, who did not have good management and got taken advantage of. It reminds me of an article that I read years ago about when Elvis met the Beatles and he said, Specifically to John, how jealous he was that John got to have a group around him that could share the burden. There were four guys who all knew what it felt like to be a Beatle, but there was only one guy who knew what it felt like to be Elvis and how lonely it was. And so you think about how each of their uh, careers played out, you got to surround yourselves with professionals.
1: Boy, isn't that the truth? That is so much the truth. We had a young act they brought me years ago. Which I promoted. They were I n what? How did they spell it? Uh, they were called NXS, I believe. Oh, the, sure. They were Absolutely. from Australia. It, Love those guys. I n yes, in a, they had. They were doing very well. And I pick up my morning newspaper years later. The lead singer. Let me just put it in my own parlance. He hit the time clock and checked out. He had had enough. Uh, um, the pressure got to him, and I hate to see that. You have MC Hammer. He had a big, big hit. You know it. You can't touch this. Of course. Which the music of that behind him was nothing more than the instrumental version of a song by Rick James called Super Freak. Mm Mm-hmm. Remember that? Oh, yes. And uh, Well, on the 12-inch dance single, which we played in the nightclubs, you had the vocal of Super Freak. That was all. On Motown. You turned the 12-inch dance single over and you had the instrumental. So I could mix that instrumental in to the dance floor because everybody knew what it was coming up and I'd get more time out of it because then with a second copy, I could come in and bring the vocal in there and everybody loved it. But MC Hammer thought he was Elvis there for a while. He would mm-hmm. use a a 49 or 50 entourage everywhere he went. He had a mansion that had waterfalls in it. (laughs) I mean, it was ridiculous. The man went bankrupt, and they recently talked to Hammer, and he said, it's true, I was bankrupt. It's true, I spent my money unwisely. I thought I was somebody I was not, but you know what he did? He turned Christian. Well, he was Christian the whole time but he went to work for the church a church's plural giving sermons being a Christian artist and I understand now he's made it back maybe not as big as what he was but he's now in the black so to speak no longer bankrupt and he said and I, this is what I want your opinion of he said if I had it to do over I'd have done the exact same thing because now I'm ready for what I should should have been ready for the first time. What do you think?
0: I mean, I'd like to think that if I had made those choices, that if I had the chance to do it over again, I might do a few things smarter. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't regret any step that got me where I am because I like who I am and I like where I am. And I think it's important that you learn from the choices. But if I there was a magic time machine and I was going back in time, yeah, I might do a few things better. There might be a few choices I would make to put myself in a better position moving forward. But you know, we are where we are. I would hate to think that that anyone live with regrets. That's the worst part. I often think about the end, which we're all going to face at some point. And I heard somebody the other day that this just stopped in my tracks, Rick. They said that in their opinion, um, the definition of hell is meeting up with the person that you could have been.
1: Oh, yeah. What Neil Young said, the, the, the saddest four words uh, <laughs> that have ever been, I think, he's, are the, the words, it might have been. There yeah, you go. That's like fishermen on the couch, on the porch out front, talking about the big one that got away. Right. Yeah. Why not show someone the taxidermy on the wall and show them the fish? Don't talk about the big one that got away. Right. Oh, right. my goodness gracious. Our guest today, ladies and gentlemen, Jackie Russo, who you get an award, Jackie, for the way you spell your first name. Lord all. <laughs> almighty. J-A-C-I. Where did that come from? And is it mom and dad's fault?
0: Mom and dad's faults. Yeah, that's a tough one. I'm not sure if they just thought I couldn't handle more than four letters, if they wanted a unique spelling because they thought that would provide some differentiation in life. It's been a challenge. There's a couple of points where I actually thought about changing it because it's um, it's hard to go around with a misspelled name your whole life. It, you get mispronounced. People don't know how to do it. But I will say that the one benefit is that I've never had trouble getting my name as a username At any time, um, because there's not any other Jackie Russo spelled that way. So whenever, you know, I I open a new account on some online site, boop, there's my name ready to go.
1: (laughs) All right. All right. Let's move forward here. You work with a giant in the field of television, to say the least. Oh, my God. Is this guy well known in that industry? You know who I'm talking about.
0: Barry Diller.
1: Oh, please tell me. How did that happen? And what did you learn from Mr. Diller?
0: A lot, actually. He's one of my best mentors and teachers. Um, So I was at CAA and left to go work with a director client. We started a production company and was there for a few years. Got to do some great work, work on a couple of big projects. And I was in charge of product development and marketing of the feature films that we produced. And so great skill sets to have later in life. One of the products that I developed was called Stretch and Flex, which was a a surgical tube uh, exercise device used by Mimi Rod the first Mrs. Tom Cruise to get back into shape after having a baby and I was able to uh, we worked on the videos themselves you know the instructional manuals this is shortly after Suzanne Somers success with the Master, and so everybody's looking for easy ways to be in good shape and some sort of packaging that was going to be very visible on TV because now that was an opportunity to really sell directly so got it all packaged up looking good and shopped it around and Home Shopping Network bit and so we uh, Mimi and, and her team and I went to down to St. Petersburg and went on and sold out in minutes. I mean, it was just a huge success. We went back, sold out, sold out. It was great. And at the time, uh, Mr. Diller was in the process of buying Home Shopping Network amongst other companies. And I got a call that he was looking for a right-hand person and would I be interested? I said, sure. So I'd heard the stories. You know, He was the worst boss in Hollywood. He was number one in that ranking for years. He was loud. He was abusive. He was just awful to work for. And I didn't really buy into a lot of that stuff. I figured that was kind of made up. So I uh, went in and interviewed, made it through for three or four rounds of interviews, actually was able to meet Mr. Diller and interview with him. Delightful. We got along famously. And then I get the call that they've hired someone else. Oh, was Devastated. No. Devastated. I had my whole you know resignation speech ready. i um, I had already started mentally preparing for the new challenges. I'm so bummed. And um, it was a few days later that I get a phone call, middle of the day, uh, from someone else in Mr. Diller's office that the person they hired instead of me had made it three hours and walked out. And oh. would I please <laughs> come to work for them? And I said, well, let's talk about what that compensation package is going to look like, shall yes. we? yes. Yes. And so I was able to negotiate a, a very sweet deal for myself and uh, my current uh, employer understood completely. And so I was able to go over and uh, was really a, a part of some amazing times as he built this company, he acquired Home Shopping Network, Silver King Broadcasting, uh, USA Network, Lycos City Search. It's just 10 or 12 companies altogether and became this vision that he had when he left Paramount. He was at ABC, he was at Paramount, he was at 20th Century Fox. When he left Fox, and that was a bit of a tumultuous parting. He took some time to really think about what he thought the future held. And in his opinion, now this is the 90s, right? Mid-90s. In his opinion, he believed that there would be a time in the future where we would access content, whether it was small, like on a cell phone, large on a movie screen, mid-size on a TV. That was unheard of. People thought he was crazy. And look at what we do now with streaming services. He believed that you could be watching a program and see the couch that the friends are sitting on at Central Park. click, a button and buy that couch and have it delivered. People thought that was just insane. But what he did was he took all these pieces and put them together to create the company that could in fact do those things. And that's what he did. And I got to be a part of that. And it was remarkable. He never raised his voice to me. He never lost his temper in front of me. He was an incredible boss. I learned so much about leadership, about retaining talent, what it took to build culture, Uh, where people wanted to work and met some people who had had my job before me who had awful horror stories to tell. So I think those rankings were accurate and I think my experience was accurate and it's great that they were not the same. He was a great supporter of mine. And when I told him that I was going to move home to spend time with my grandmother who had gotten sick, he was incredibly supportive of that and, and making phone calls to people in Louisiana to help me with what my next transition was going to be. And, and I'm forever grateful for that.
1: Now, didn't he literally create the Fox Television Network or no?
0: Oh, yeah. No, that's 100% true. Actually, his very first claim to fame um, is that he was the first person to buy the rights to a novel And turn that novel into a multi-part episodic on television that we now know as uh, the movie of the week. That he did that. No one did that before. That was him. He is the one who brought us roots. Saturday night fever um Greece he was and and still is brilliant but uh, you know he was revolutionary and he created the fourth network which we now know as Fox he did that under the um, watchful overreach of Rupert Murdoch and uh and has continued to blaze new trails you know I, you know I have not seen Mr Diller in years uh, but I keep up with him obviously through the trades and I would think at this point he probably still outworks most people in what he's able to get done in a day he's brilliant
1: right Right. Did he create the USA Network or did he buy that already created, if you know?
0: bought that and it existed it was not what it became it was, um, it ran a bunch of reruns and syndicated stuff he turned it into a creative powerhouse so when you think about Suits and Royal Pains, all of those, White Collar, all of those shows that emerged during that era that were so smart and so well written and so good and still have great traction in the streaming today, those all came out of his leadership
1: Right, now I used to watch the USA Network on a brilliant, and oh, I loved her. She was extremely intelligent. She was a talk show host, and the name of the show was Sonia, Dr. Sonia Freeman. Of course. And I thought she was brilliant. Uh, Had you ever had occasion to work with her, and did you know her?
0: I did not know her. I was up in the corporate office. I wasn't on set of um, the different programs. I was, you know, when you acquire a bunch of companies, it's a lot of work to get the culture and the branding and all of the pieces to fit together to create a picture. And so that's the team that I was on. Uh, and then I was serving as Mr. Diller's right hand. And, and that was a lot. That was He was a handful. Uh, Rick, he kept me busy. Um, you know, he worked in multiple time zones at a time. He was always traveling. And so I was the, the center thread that kept all the pieces connected. And so I did not get a chance to know her. Uh, but she was a great um, talent and uh, asset to the company.
1: Very, very well. Now, we mentioned uh, our old buddy there, MC Hammer. I don't want to pick on MC because, quite frankly, I'm delighted that he's seen the light, that he's doing well, that he went bankrupt and now came out of it and is successful again, doing something which he greatly enjoys, which is being a Christian music artist. Now, have you seen in your lifetime they bring you a client, A, B, or C? over here, and it doesn't have to be in singing or show business, where you can see the handwriting on the wall, just like MC described, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that. It was in his head. It was the wrong thing to be thinking at the wrong time. And you see this, you discuss it with your client, and your client is bullheaded. They want nothing to do with it. And you're out. What do you do? then? Just grin and bear it.
0: (laughs) I have a rule of three is how I think about it. So you've hired me for my professional expertise and I don't, um, I I charge a pretty penny for my knowledge. It's built on years and years of experience. And I believe that you want to know my opinion because that's what you're paying for. So we are discussing whatever your project might be. I'm going to give you my professional opinion. Here it is. This is what I think is the right answer. You don't like it. It doesn't fit your aesthetic or your vibe, or perhaps you want it to be a different way. You maybe don't fully f- believe that your target audience is this way or that way. You Maybe you think you are your target audience. So you push back a little bit. Well, that was strike one for me. Strike two, I- I'm going to come at you with some reasoning, some rationale, some examples, some supporting documentation, some best practices. I'm going to give you a lot of really logical reasons why this is, in fact, the best choice. Now I recognize it's your company and it's your investment, and I, I I do respect that. But again, you've hired me for my skills and my experience and my background, and quite honestly, I've done this more than you have. So you're you, you brought me in for that reason. So here it is. Oh, you you're nope. You're still seeing it the way you want to see it. You're still feeling it the way you want to feel it. You are not having any of it. Well, that's strike two for me. So here we go. Back up to the plate. Strike three. This is my last chance. I'm going to bring in maybe a focus group, maybe some true deep research, some real hard facts and figures. I'm going to give you all the reasons possible that you might need uh, to make what I think is the right choice. And then at that point, you're like, no, it's going to be my way or the highway. That's strike three. I'm out. So now we, I have a choice. I either do it your way because it's your company and that's how you want it, or I respectfully resign because I know that's not going to work and I do not want to put my name on it. Um, I don't want to see it go badly. And I don't want to be blamed for a choice I didn't make. And so that's a choice I have to make. Sometimes I stick with it. I like the person. I like the company. I let them know the big disclaimer. I'm going to do it your way. And if it works, I'm going to be so excited for both of us. And if it doesn't work, you're going to hold the bag on it. Or I'm going to pick the option B and I'm just going to respectfully resign, which I've had to do. Uh, There's a huge regional company that we were doing work for and uh, the work was working. We got letters from the president, emails, congratulating us on the great success. But the, uh, the chief market, officer and the vice president really didn't want to change. They really wanted to go back to the way they'd been doing it. And I went through my one, two, three. And at the end, I said, "Okay, good luck to you. We're out. And that was the choice we had to make for our own sanity.
1: I see nothing wrong with that. I respect you for it. There are it's like what I call talking to a brick wall. In fact, in certain cases, you can have a more intelligent conversation with the wall than the person because their mind is made up. Right, right. All right. Why should someone call Brand Russo in the time that we have? What are you going to give them that they do not have right now?
0: Well, I'm going to listen first. I want to understand where they are in their process and really get a sense of what they've done right, wrong, what's going well, and and where there might be opportunity. I don't think we're the right fit for everybody. Uh, There's plenty of companies that we say no to because it's just not a good fit. But for the ones that are, it's because they have plateaued they are not growing like they need to and want to. They're a mid-sized company. They've got some budget and they want to take advantage of some opportunities that they haven't figured out how to tap into because they're still doing the things the way they always did them. We're here to change the conversation. And so what we will do um, after really understanding where their challenges are and where their opportunities are is we will come in and do razor branding. Uh, Razor branding is something we trademarked back in 2005. It has four core elements. Focus. Who are your target audiences. We need to know them inside and out. We're going to go talk to them. We're going to research them. We're going to know them better than they know themselves. Promise. Why should each of those target audiences choose you? There's a reason, a specific, unique, special, differentiated reason. I got to know what it is and maybe different reasons for different groups. Number three, what we call the connection. How are we going to break through the clutter and get them to connect with you with a message that really matters? So that particular target audience with this particular brand promise is going to have that specific. Specific message that's going to resonate with them. And then the fourth and final piece is harmony. Where's that message going to go? That they're going to see it enough times that they hear it and see it and we'll take action on it. That is a four-month process for us to go build out that strategic brand plan, and then we're not just going to hand you the plan and go away. We're going to be the ones who help you implement it. We're going to be the ones who make sure that your social media and your PR and your email campaigns and your website and your ads and your trade shows and your thought leadership are all being done the best way they can possibly be done. We're going to track it. We're going to know what's working and not working, and um, we're going to help you grow and be more successful.
1: You created something, Jackie, which is called razor branding, and I'm not talking about shaving your face. what <laughs> What is, uh, I don't think it was a campaign for Gillette or Schick or whoever's making the blades these days. What is razor branding and what was the reason why you created it?
0: Well, it's because everybody needs a process. If you don't have a process, then you're just guessing. And so when we have a process, we keep ourselves accountable to each other and to our target audience, our clients, our customers. We are able to build something that we can utilize as a framework framework for the success we're going to have. Now we know what we're going to measure. Now we know who we're trying to reach out to. Now we know how to make sure we're going to deliver the success that our clients need. And you can't do that unless you have a process. So we don't want to guess. We want to, we want to have results. And so this is how we do that.
1: Our guest today, ladies and gentlemen, a brand strategist with more than 25 years of experience on a national level with a cross-section of industries. Her name is Jackie, J-A-C-I, the only Jackie in the world with a name spelled like that. J-A-C-I, last name Russo, R-U-S-S-O. That sounds Italian to me. I, I may be wrong but that's my guess jackie Russo.com, everybody that's one of three websites that she has jackie how does somebody get a hold of you if they wish to do so
0: well i'm on all the socials so you can find me on facebook or instagram or twitter which mc hammer follows me on twitter i just thought i should mention <laughs> um and, uh, and you can always go to the website, jackyrusso.com or BrandRusso.com or my online education platform to teach people how to be better marketers, BrandstateU, like university.com. Happy to talk to the people and see how I can help.
1: Right. Well, after You Can't Touch This, he went on, MC did with a with a piece called Too Legit to Quit. And maybe we'll dedicate that to you today. From <laughs> Motown to Yo-Town, ladies and gentlemen, one we're going to send out to Miss Jen- Jackie Russo from brandrusso.com. She's too legit to quit. Or do you have designs on quitting here in the near future? Are you going to keep plugging away?
0: I love what I do and I love being able to help people. So I'm keep plugging away.
1: All right. And a mother of four. Yes. And what do you have to say about them apples before we get out of here?
0: I like them. I'm going to keep them.
1: (laughs) All right. Very, very well. Now, I just want to say it's been a great hour. You cannot parlay everything that you have learned in 25 years into an hour, but you can tell a prospective customer what.
0: I think you need to know your target audience. I think you need to know yourself. I think you need to know what makes you special, and I think you need to know how to connect.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, this is Rick Flynn speaking. It's been fun, but I've got to run. On behalf of myself and our special guest today, from the Creole Cajun capital of uh, one of them of the world, if not the world, Lafayette, Louisiana. Her name is Jackie Russo, www.jackierusso.com. Thank you everyone. New shows every Wednesday. We'll see you next week with another show. Thank you, Jackie. And we appreciate all of your listening to the program today. We'll see you on the next one. Good night.
0: And good night to you, Rick, and to everybody. Thanks so much for having me. Y'all take care.
1: The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking.